if you don't put your ideas out there, other people can't add value to them. They also maybe can't steal them, but more importantly, they can't add value to them. And I was never afraid of, of, of that. People can't steal what's in your heart. You know, they can, they maybe can take some of your ideas that they see in the public domain, but they can't steal your, what's in your heart. And that really was what I knew I was creating was a company with heart that would care about its associates, it would care about its customers, it would contribute back to the community. I didn't need more. I had I had a successful career, as you said. I had my husband and I both had enough. It, it wasn't that we wanted more. We wanted to be able to do more for the for the good of the, the world and the community. And that was really what, what Build Bear was meant to be for us. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. So what do department stores, teddy bears, and a child's eyes have to do with building a billion-dollar brand? Well, in the case of Maxine Clark, the founder of Build-A-Bear Workshop, just about everything. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a visionary woman started one of America's most recognizable brands at the age of 48 and built a billion-dollar company based on hugs and love. Before we get to today's show, I want to deliver a heartfelt thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to you, the audience. I feel so lucky to be doing something I love and that is appreciated by you, the listener. If I could just do this show for a living, I would. But until then, we'll keep doing it because as Marie Kondo says, it sparks joy. Oh, so much joy. And I want to thank you for taking the time to listen and absorb these amazing stories. I truly believe that stories shape our world and that the very best way we can connect with our fellow humans, find meaning in this crazy thing we call life is through stories. But even more, when we are invited into someone else's story, it has this amazing effect. Just like when we travel to foreign lands and realize that those people across the globe that we thought were so different, so weird, that don't agree with us, perhaps we think they're evil or that they're against our way of life or strange or different, we find they're just like us and that we have so much in common. And that bonds us as humans delivers empathy to our fellow humans, and makes the world right again. Now, if you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at iTunes. iTunes uses these as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on the Apple charts, and ratings help us to build an audience, which in turn then helps us to continue to produce this show. And lastly, this show is all about creating value for you as well as opening up a dialogue. And I realize I'm doing all the talking, but please, let's start the conversation. I am at Mark Gutman on Facebook, Insta, LinkedIn, and you can always send an email to podcast at wildstory.com with your thoughts and comments. If you have any great ideas for guests, please let me know. It's always better if you know or have a connection to the person you're recommending, but any suggestion is welcome. No matter how crazy, let's let's shoot for the stars here. I want to hear who you want to hear. And now on to today's show. I really don't even know how to intro today's guest. All that comes to mind is that she's amazing, inspiring, captivating, energizing, 
loving, visionary. The person who introduced us once gave me the best compliment I have ever received. He said, Mark, you're a faucet, not a drain. And I think that this applies to Maxine Clark 10 times over. She's a faucet, a giver. And as I get older every year and wonder if my best years are behind me, Maxine is pure inspiration. I mean, she started a huge company at the age of 48 and continues to do amazing things for the entrepreneur community in her hometown of St. Louis. She is a role model for all of us. Maxine's an amazing woman, a trailblazer in business, and someone who was the first in many of firsts. She rose up through the ranks of May department stores to become the president of Payless Shoe Source, and these were two of the biggest brands and shopping malls at the time. I want you to think back. The year is 1997, and the first Build-A-Bear workshop opens. And as Maxine tells it, it was like lightning in a bottle. It is the apex of the shopping mall. The internet and e-commerce has yet to become a primary way of shopping. Most businesses don't even have websites or e-commerce sites. Microsoft has just released Internet Explorer 4. Leonardo DiCaprio is flying on the bow of the Titanic with Kate Winslet. And Hanson's Mbop is a hit, and it's only relevant because they were the boy band of the shopping mall. This is an origin story of one of the most recognizable brands from every shopping mall in America. And just about any kid under the age of 12 knows about Build-A-Bear, and there's something magical about the experience. And if you've ever been to a Build-A-Bear, you know what I'm talking about. For years, my parents, my kids' grandparents, would celebrate birthdays with trips to Build-A-Bear. It's where you go to have an experience or celebrate something special. It's transformative and so much more than just acquiring a teddy bear. It's an expression of love. When you meet Maxine, she's four foot, 10 inches tall, but lights up the room as if she's seven feet tall. She's full of life. She's vibrant, sage, and full of wisdom. I found myself hanging on every word she says. I couldn't get enough. And Maxine is a true visionary who can see what she wants and enlist others to help her execute on her vision. And here is the story of Build-A-Bear Workshop. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Maxine, you've had an amazing career, and you're not even close to being done yet. You've risen through the ranks at May & Company. You were president of Payless Shoe Source. That is always hard for me to say. And of course, you're known as the founder, the CEB, or the Chief Executive Bear of Build-A-Bear Workshop. And now you're spending your time focused on supporting the entrepreneurial ecosystem, as well as the early childhood education efforts in your hometown of St. Louis. You sit on a lot of boards for some big companies. We'll get to all of that in just a little bit. But you have this book and you devote a whole chapter in your book and it's called The Bare Necessities of Business. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about that today. Uh, and, and in this chapter, you talk about how it's so important to learn from the experience of others. And so that is my goal for this episode. And so to start, I'd like to go back to the beginning. Did you know at an early age you were destined to become the chief executive bear? Well, the only signal that I would have had about being um, future chief executive bear would have been my love of my teddy bear, Teddy. And I lost him when I was 10 years old. And little did I know I would be reacquainted with him hundreds of millions of times over through the teddy bears made in our store. But no, I um, was a very ambitious person. I wanted, my father was a business person. My mother was a social 
worker and I wanted to be a lawyer, a civil rights attorney. So I went to college, majored in journalism and storytelling, if you will. And I uh, went off to law school and needed a job and ended up going to work at the main department stores in their head company division in Washington and took a leave of absence from law school because I love the work and I'm still on that leave of absence. <laughs> and so is this the same Teddy that you dedicate your book to? Yes. Oh, and so t- tell me about Teddy. Like, wh- wh- you know, you dedicate your book to him and you, you mention him and it sounds like he was pretty uh, impactful in your life. Uh, tell me a little he bit about was. Teddy. He went with me everywhere and I told my deepest, darkest, deepest, darkest secrets to him. And when I was 10 years old, I went out to dinner with my family and our next door neighbors. And while I was in the restaurant, my dad, I found this out when I was my 40th birthday, my dad took my teddy bear away from me because he wanted, I used to suck my thumb and he wanted me to stop doing that. And he thought if he took my teddy bear away, I would stop. So it was quite a traumatic experience. But I, I figured it out long before my father told me uh, that that's what had happened. And um, I didn't, I wasn't mad at him. I recovered. But I always loved stuffed animals. And I always was on the lookout when I saw a child holding their stuffed animal and they were like about to lose it. I would, you know, say, don't lose that. You know, I always had a special place in my heart, but Teddy was, he's always with me. I remember what he looked like. He was a brown bear, even though by the time I lost him, he was a small part of his original self because he was much loved and hugged. And was that what the uh, base Build-A-Bear was based off of Teddy? Was he, he the sort of prototype for that? There was a bear in our first collection. Um, we had many animals, we had about 25, um, not all bears, but there was a bear that, we, that I thought represented him. But actually, uh, um, one of the bears we had was, the, the idea for Build-A-Bear actually came from uh, one of my uh, friends who was 10 years old. We were looking for Beanie Babies. And when we couldn't find the one that we wanted, Katie suggested that they were so easy we could make them. And her bear's name was George. And she also almost lost her teddy bear on a vacation trip in Colorado. And so we had that in common. That was one of those bonds. And I always, I always looked after George when, when she went on vacation. And her brother's bear, Teddy, when he went away to college, he asked me to take care of him. And he's still at my house. <laughs> I love that story. And so... You were growing up, and did you grow up in St. Louis? No, I grew up in, in Coral Gables, Florida. Okay, okay, yeah. And so you, you grew up in, in Coral, Coral Gables, and you go to school in uh, Georgia, I believe. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be a, a, a lawyer, an attorney, uh, probably civil rights, and you're going to make a big impact. And you have this opportunity to go into uh, retail as a trainee uh, at the main company. And you know, I'd love to hear about that decision and what kind of drew you to that. But before you get into that, or in, in addition to that, I'd like you to set the stage of what retail was like then, because certainly very different from what we see today. And uh, just to give us a little baseline of, of kind of what that retail experience was like. Well, retailing uh, was very local. Uh, all across the country, there were local specialty stores, local department stores and they were just starting to become more national. The May Company was a conglomerate of department stores. Some were called May Company, some were called that company in St. Louis it was famous bar. And they put these they bought up a series of department store, family owned department stores and put them together. And there was federated department stores. It was out of Cincinnati. Similarly they had Burdines and Filene's and many stores across the country. And so that was the, the phase we we're in in the early 70s was corporate-owned department stores still with their local names. And the specialty stores were usually very local, like somebody opened up a dress shop or somebody opened a shoe store or somebody opened a, a clothing store in a local city. And eventually, there were a few national chains actually out of St. Louis. Was Edison Brothers had owned um, several chains of 
different shoe stores. And they also started buying up these apparel chains and created national uh, specialty stores for mostly in teen apparel, young person's apparel. Uh, so it was just starting. Les Wexner, I believe, started the limited in 1975 um, with one store in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, the rest is history. So we were at the beginning of this expansion of the mall and the expansion of specialty stores and the demise of downtown shopping areas. Uh, people were definitely had moved to the suburbs and the suburbs were growing and retailing was all about uh, the mall. And these incredible malls were being built all over the country. And there was a new place for everybody to open up a store. Uh, it was a plug and play format. That's what I call it. That's why it's so successful. Anybody could open a store in a mall sort of build their store into that space and, you know, turn the, open the doors and turn on the, the lights and have a business. And that is how the mall business really developed. The first mall, I think, was in Edina, um, Minnesota, right outside of Minneapolis in 1956. And a slow change. We had our our mall in Miami. It was a big big mall near uh, Gayland. Again, it was was twice the size now that it was when I was growing up. It was an open-air mall, became a closed mall. But mostly there was these areas that you would shop in sort of semi-downtown shopping areas. Those were just, you know, now they're hardly in existence. Yeah, and, you know, and it's changed quite a bit. And I almost like as you were talking, it made me think of like, it's kind of like the original internet, you know, the way the mall was this curated, you know, we'll bring you the customers, you just have to bring us the the business and the, your idea. And like you said, it was turnkey, and you could open up a shop. And, you know, theoretically, you'd have a stream of customers coming by and, and, and hopefully, uh, they'd be interested in what you had to offer. What attracted you to retail. So, you know, you mentioned you were on this path to be an attorney and, you know, you kind of went up to DC to, to take a, a retail training job. And, and I, what I'm inferring is that wasn't really the plan to stay there, that you were going to maybe go check that out and come back to, to the, the path of being an attorney. But, but you got, you got kind of uh, caught up in it. Like what was attract, attractive about that? Well, when I was in high school, um, I was the editor of my high school newspaper and I had to go out and sell advertising and not only, you know, lay out and put the newspaper together. And I love that. And that's kind of retailing and you have to sell something and somebody has to buy it. So we had to sell advertising. We had to create uh, formats within our newspaper that students would buy. But also I had great teachers. And in college, I had a great marketing professor um, great advertising and PR and also marketing. And one of my professors worked for the WT Grant Company, which doesn't exist today. And he did consulting for them and he allowed me to participate in some of the projects. And he said to me one day, he said, you know, you'd be great in retail and you need people like you. You have a lot of curiosity. You're really interested. And so when I went to DC to go to, to go to school, I also went to see if there were jobs in the local department stores that I could work in. And they had these executive training programs the Heck Company, which was part of May Company, had one in Woodward and Lothrop, which is the other department store that was more local. They had one also. And so I applied to all of them, and the Heck Company hired me. And uh, fortunately, well, it was an unfortunate story, but it was good for me. My boss got sick and had to take a leave of absence, and I was just a few months in the job. And they needed me to do some everything that he did. And the, the, my boss, which was the merchandise manager, he was the buyer, but the merchandise manager that he reported to, so don't worry about anything. Don't panic. We'll, we'll show you. So for about six months, I did this job that I wasn't really qualified to do, but I had the, my boss's boss teaching me. And I traveled and went to New York, went to buy, and I loved it. And I, as soon as he came back, they promoted me to be a buyer because um, I'd done such a good job. So I was sort of off and running. I had this big paycheck, not really so big, but it seemed big to me at the time. And uh, I was starting to travel for the company and um, asked to do some major projects. And 
got exposure to the top people in the company and then eventually to the top CEO of the May company when he came to visit. And when he, then I got a chance to move to St. Louis to work for him. So it just sort of, the journey is far better than the destination. And I, you know, you just take a right turn and maybe you'll take a left turn back or you'll just keep going. I kept going and each, each chapter just got bigger and better. But it started with my marketing professor in college, even teaching us what retailing was about. I was a good shopper. I didn't always have so much money. I loved to window shop and loved to go into stores. And I always have been curious. So it played to my curiosity. It also played to my, I was the right person at the right time. This was 1971 when I started working and doing this job. And it was when working women were you know, new to the marketplace and needed everything. And so I could, as a sportswear buyer, apparel buyer, create, I was the customer. So I just really was able to know pretty firsthand what the customer was looking for. I had good instincts about that. <laughs> and it really strikes me and, you know, in reading your material and hearing, you know, and sitting and talking with you previously, that you really are a big believer and uh, about setting a strong vision. And you kind of talked about, hey, I have this vision even to be an attorney. But at the same time, I get the sense and I'd love to get your take on this that you don't, you're not a slave to that vision. You're not so myopic that you're not like, hey, if another great opportunity presents itself, I will alter that vision. Yes, that's definitely true. I think it's my curiosity. That's my superpower. I am very curious about everything. I have a, you know, I'm nosy and I'm proud of it. Uh, and I just want to keep learning. I think that's been my strength always. I never thought, my, I also know what I don't know and there's no uh, shame in that. That's just the opportunity to learn more. So that's really what, what being a consumer oriented person is, is finding out always what the customer is looking for. And I would love, I'd love to look at reports that put the customer in front of you and you can tell from what they bought else besides if they bought this makeup and this clothing brand and these shoes, what they generally liked. And I can create in my head a vision of who that target customer was. Um, so I have a very visual mind. I can see things um, and I can sometimes sketch them out, but mostly I can see them really clearly in my head enough that I can bring it back to my memory so I can you know, execute to that design. And then I can, because I'm a good storyteller, I can tell it to other people who can help me execute it. Uh, so that's what I was able to do with my training from the May Company when I had the idea for Build-A-Bear. I could explain it to somebody else who could design the store and who could help me design the animals and all the things that go with it. I didn't have to do it all myself. I could uh, share that with others. And that was a, definitely a gift that I have. But I don't know, I don't know everything and I don't even want to know everything. I want to <laughs> continually be able to learn and to grow. And that's where new ideas and new trends come in, uh, to be. And then you have to, re you have to react to those. And so... I'm always out on the cutting edge. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't want to gloss over your time at Main Company because we're, we're making it sound like it was, you know, two seconds. But I mean, you had a very long career there in a time when, you know, that was a little more common. And I believe you spent, what, like 19 years there. And not only is it like about just staying at the company, you really like matriculated through the company. You, you know, you started as a trainee, but you, you came up through the organization and you learned and you continued to grow and take on more responsibility. Can you just give us a little bit of a, a sense of what that, that path looked like and kind of where you ended yeah. up after those 19 years? It was a wonderful um, experience. And one of the great things about the retail industry is it's very results-oriented. So there really weren't in, my, in the head company in Washington, D.C., uh, which was a division of the main company, there weren't many women uh, that were higher than me, for sure. There were other women buyers, but there really weren't women in management positions. So all of my, my models were men. And I got great results, and that's what they noticed. And so when they had a buyer of the month or the buyer of the year, it was me. 
because my results were outstanding. So I was measured by my results, not that I was a woman or I was four foot 10 or I was 22 years old or whatever the age I was at the time. I was measured on the results. And then I had an opportunity to be to move to St. Louis to work for the, the CEO of May Company, uh, which was a great experience. I really never been to St. Louis. I didn't know anything about St. Louis. I thought I would be here for a couple of years. And within the corporate structure of the May Company, which was based in St. Louis, uh, there was the May Company corporate office. There was Famous Bar, which was one of their best department stores in the country. And they also had a division called um, Venture Stores, which was their discount division, similar to uh, a Target stores. And so I got to, to move through all of those locations as a senior executive. Um, so they were all promotions, depending on how you, you, know, you looked at the job. And also Payless Shoe Source was part of the May Company. When I was in the corporate staff in St. Louis, um, in 1979, I worked on the acquisition team for the May Company to buy Payless Shoe Source. Uh, so I, when, when I got selected to be the president of that company in 1992, it was like the family business. It was sort of something I never really thought about because it was in Topeka, Kansas, and I was in St. Louis, Missouri. But I loved that business. It was, I got to know it well during the acquisition time and do the due diligence, and I felt like it was my business. And then in 1996, the May Company spun it off as a separate company. And I was able to sort of, I'd say, take my money and run and come back to St. Louis and decide what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to work. I wanted, I knew the internet was coming uh, and I could tell you, you know, how little make company was technologically savvy. It wasn't very technology savvy. I knew that technology was out there and I wanted to get involved in a business that had a technology base. And a lot of people were calling me to come work for them, but I didn't really want to work for anybody else. I thought that there was a, a, a place where, I didn't know what it was at the time when I left, but I knew there was a place where these would come together. And they didn't necessarily have to come together and think of it's a business on a screen. Um, but how could you use technology to create a better customer experience? So since we were starting in 1997, we didn't have any legacy systems or any of those old things that people had in technology. We had to be able to create our own. And I knew May Company had a very good sales tracking systems. I wanted the best sales tracking system, I wanted the best accounting system. And I was willing to pay for it because I knew that those were things I didn't know. And I didn't want to spend my time doing them by hand. I wanted to be able to use technology. So from the day we started our company, we had pretty, pretty amazing systems, but we also had a website. Um, so we started in 1996. We had built our first Build-A-Bear store at the St. Louis Galleria in St. Louis, Missouri. And we had our web store at buildabear.com. And we were immediately getting inquiries on um, the day we, the second day, the day that we the day after we opened, people were already you know, going online, finding out if we were a franchise, writing us notes, finding out our hours, where was our store located in the mall. We only had one store, but the news was spreading fast. And we fortunately had the smarts to have a website from day one, even though nobody else really had a website. And Macy's didn't even have a website. Pet company, make company didn't have a website. Uh, and so we were able to really start, you know, really from the beginning. We, didn't, we weren't locked into any historical technology systems. Yeah, and, and I want to just take a pause here because I want to get the, the timeline straight because I'm, I'm really fascinated by this, especially in today's entrepreneurial climate where we have all these young entrepreneurs, they expect to have their, you know, jump, mm -hmm. right, into, right, jump right into some venture, have it be amazing, have an exit. But you spent 
20 years almost learning business, you know, in, in this great retail environment at makeup. You then, I mean, you could have called your career over, you know, at the end of Payless. You go to, you're a president of a major, you know, retailing corporation, Payless uh, Shoe Shores. You, you make some good money. And so how old are you at, at this time when, you know, you exit Payless? 48. You're 48 years old, right? And I, and I have this problem all the time. I feel like I'm getting older and how am I going to come up with a new idea or run a new business or, you know, stay, stay ahead of the kids coming up behind me. And so at 48, you have this vision to do Build-A-Bear. And, you know, one of the things I love, love, love about your book is you have this kind of concept of like dreaming the, the, the really big dream and having the really big vision. And so from day one, did you have that really, really big vision? And then how did you kind of connect those dots? Because I know so many, you know, we all know the people that have all these great ideas, but really the difference between, you know, having that great idea and that, and that vision is executing and, and following through with it. And so can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. I don't think that because I worked for a large company, I wasn't doing entrepreneurial things every single day. I was an entrepreneur. I ran my own multi-million dollar business from almost the first six months I was in the company. And I continued to be promoted to run bigger and bigger businesses and pay less. It was a two and a half billion dollar business. So those are entrepreneurial ventures and you're just doing it with somebody else's money, which gives it, you know, some much level of security, but if you don't produce the results, there's no security there. And I was always coming up with new ideas to make our businesses grow. That's my job as the leader is to help lead us to the future, uh, not to stay still or be in the past. So um, make company encouraged, uh, retailing encourages the customer always wants something new. They don't want what they had last year. They come into the store for um, maybe another pink sweater, but because pink is their favorite color, but not the same style of sweater they bought last year. And so you have to constantly be innovating and that's what retailing, that's what made re retailing so successful. And that still is what customers come to the store to buy pretty much something new because they, they, when they want to buy something like they had before, they can go online and just press the button and buy that size six pair of shoes that they always like. But when they want something new, they do want to touch it and feel it. And uh, maybe they'll buy it online and they'll bring it, they'll send it home and then they'll go back in the store to return it. And that's why we have multi-platform, multi-channel operations today. But I was always an entrepreneur. I didn't necessarily think of myself that way because entrepreneur usually means somebody who started their own business. But I was allowed to be entrepreneurial. And I think that's a really important skill that we uh, need to be teaching. If we can teach, you may not be able to teach natural entrepreneurs, but you can teach the entrepreneurial mindset. And I think that's really what American business uh, needs today. We have to be looking at that talent from many, many avenues. There's tons of people with lots of great ideas out there. They may not have access to the money or to the business where they can make that come to, to life, but we do need to do a better job of connecting young people with talent and ideas to people who can help them execute it, but still give them the credit, give the young people the credit and make them part of the of the profitable pie that is going to come forward. So I was um, 48 years old when I started my own business, but I never, I loved working for the May company. I had a phenomenal career. I was making great money. I had great benefits. I worked with really smart people. I never thought about opening my own business. I was running my own business. I was held accountable for it every day. And I just that, you know, at the, when May company decided to spin off Payless as a public company, it became an opportunity for me. And I just said, I don't this is a really great time. This is when the internet was just starting. There's a void here. People are missing that connection that they had with their customer. And I wanted to bring that back. And it, it really did come up because I was just very open-minded to what the future 
uh, could be for me. And I was out with, I, I mentioned it earlier, out with my best friend, Katie, and her little brother, Jack, who she was 10 and he was like seven. And we were looking for something just very naturally. And that's where the ideas are. They're staring us in the face every day. But not everybody has the skill set to bring it to reality. I did. I had the, the training uh, to bring a business uh, together. And if I didn't know, I could call somebody on the phone and say, what could, do you know somebody here in town that I could use for my warehousing? And somebody in the make company would tell me, do you know about what price of rent I should be paying in this mall? They would tell me. And so, you know, I had a lot of connections and I used those connections to help expand my company's uh, potential. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things you talk about Katie and Jack and on a previous episode, we had Jeff Hoffman, who was the founder of Priceline.com. And he yeah. talked a lot about looking at the world with wonder uh, through a child's eyes. And you say the same thing about letting a child inspire you. I think, you know, that truly comes from your experience with Katie and Jack. And, you know, and, and it's really the uh, inspiration for, for Build-A-Bear Workshop and, and all this, you know, great joy that you're bringing out to the world. I mean, why is it so important for us to, to look at the world through a child's eyes like that? Well, first of all, they're the future. And they have amazing, unjaded thoughts about the world and the uh, what they like and what they don't like. And they're not. If you ask them, they'll tell you. Now, a lot of children are, you know, taught in the old days, like you know, speak when spoken to. Uh, but I, I'm sort of one of the lucky things for me is I'm about four foot ten, so I'm the same height as a lot of kids. And I can, you know, when I'm with them. And of course, now that I have Build a Bear, when I mention Build a Bear, every kid wants to talk to me and tell me the stories of their bears, and I get tons of feedback. But when I was just starting out Build-A-Bear, um, I still was like that. I've always been, I have no children of my own and I was always close. That was by choice. I always was really close to my friend's kids and we had a special relationship. You know, it's different when you go to spend the night at your friend's house than it is when you're sleeping in your own bed at home. And we would always do fun things. I'm, I'm a kid at heart. I'm very creative. I love to make things and do things and kids love to do that too. So they allowed me to be me. And I think that sometimes we get so caught up in business and politics and organizational structure and family problems, we forget to use our kid thing. And I try to inspire kids today that I work with and talk to, to never lose their kid thing. Yeah. And, and like, how do, how do we as adults not lose that? Well, you have to always be creative and, and curious. I mean, curiosity is really what made the world what it is today. Somebody thought this was, there could be something better. And they invented that better. And that's what we're all prospering from. Uh, and when things aren't better, when things are made worse or not protected, they go away. And I think that's not, uh, one of the things that we're dealing with. So I think kids have all the answers for how we're going to save our planet, how we're going to eliminate racism, how we're going to uh, improve our health. It's all in those kids' heads. They just don't know it yet. We have to put them in environments where they're allowed to just talk out loud and say what's on their mind and things come out and then people that are listening to them have to listen with open ears. So, you know, you might hear something on Monday and it doesn't make a lot of sense. It sounds kind of wild, but by Wednesday, two other people have told you something about that. You click, click, it clicks into your head and you say, that's a trend or that's a fa that's an idea. And some of them turn out to be fads. They come and they go, but other things have a longer potential. The other thing is I was always willing to share. If you don't put your ideas out there, other people can't add value to them. They also maybe can't steal them, but more importantly, they can't add value to them. And I was never afraid of, of, of that. People can't steal what's in your heart. You know, they can, they maybe can take some of your ideas that they see in the public domain, but they can't steal your, what's in your heart. And that really was what I knew I was creating. It was a company with heart that would care about its associates. It would care about its customers. It would contribute back to the community. I didn't need more. I had, I had a successful career, as you said. I had, my husband and I both had enough. 
it, it wasn't that we wanted more. We wanted to be able to do more for the for the good of the, of the world and the community. And that was really what, what Build Bear was meant to be for us, was an opportunity for us if it was successful, which I knew it would be because kids told me it would be, to, you know, monetize that investment and bring other people to the table to also invest with us and, and share in the success of the company, including our associates. And that I worked for a company like that. The May Company was a tremendous company to work for. I almost always made my bonus. I always was, you know, it put it, it, put it in the bank and it grew and grew and grew. And that money was able to help me start Build Bear. So they had great benefits. They took care of their associates and, in, in a, you know, whatever the, what, I remember my insurance at one time was a dollar a month. It was pretty good. Uh, but, you know, the, we had great training programs. They were sending you to, to allowing you to grow and, and learn and uh, contribute. And so I never had any complaints about that. I was, I was really a lucky duck in that respect. I, I walked into a great company to work for and I got great results and they gave it back to me a hundred times over. Mm, I love that. People can't steal what's in your heart. And I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, taking that to heart. And so, you know, I think that, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, going back to, to build a bear in that first store at the gallery in St. Louis, I mean, what did that look like compared to kind of the stores today? I mean, what were some of the, the key components that, you know, you brought in that, that instantly resonated? I mean, were things like the coloring book uh, style box and things like that, were those, uh, you know, key yes. components of the, of the store? Yes, the store is very much like it is today. One thing that's different, pretty substantially different, actually, is I thought that we had 25 animals and we had about 12 outfits we had no shoes at that time. I'd just come from the shoe business, so I was, didn't really want to get back in the shoe business. And bears didn't really need shoes. They could go barefoot, of course. So, but we had some other, you know, we had greeting cards, we had gift wrap, anything that had teddy bears on it, I brought into this first store. And it all sold, but we needed room for more customers. The lines were out the door. We had to rethink our customer, our, our store really quickly because we opened on, on October 26, 1997, and we were coming into the Christmas season. And by Christmas, people, the lines were out the door. We had to, so right after Christmas was over, little did I know that Valentine's was going to be such a big holiday also. And that January was going to be so big because kids were, got their gift cards. Or in those days, we used gift certificates and they were coming in to make their bears. And so we never really had returns. We just had tons of customers in line waiting to get in. And so we had to close the store for a weekend so we could take out all that stuff and put in more fixtures for more bears and put in more registers and put in more name me computers so more kids could sit down and name their bear. We only had two of those. We had two registers and we had a lot of uh, fixture space that was for things that were tertiary to our business. So we, you know, we, we really adjusted very, very quickly. And as we learned new things in each store, we went backwards and re, um, retrofitted that, the other stores to be the format of the store that we're going. Now, you don't know this, but in the very, maybe that you read that in the book, in the very first stores, we actually sewed up every bear in the back. We had people that sat there and, and after you stuffed your bear, we had needles and thread and people actually sewed them up. So our productivity was limited by the number of people. Sometimes we had 13, 14 people sitting in chairs sewing up bears because that was the bottleneck in our store. And right after the first year, we hired a consultant to come in and help us with our bottlenecks um, because we just, we knew that we couldn't do this. And we actually um, invented a system for pre-lacing the bears in China where we were making them that we could just pull the stitching. But as soon as we, as we were doing that, somebody else was filing a similar patent. So we ended up buying that patent from them instead of trying to patent our own. We ended up buying the patent for them. It was expensive at the time. 
very, very expensive. But when you think about all the bears we've sold, it's been, you know, a huge payback. Uh, but luckily for me, I had the financial wherewithal to do that. I had investors by then and we, we, they trusted me to know what was the right thing to do with them for the business. So we were constantly innovating and, and responding to the business that we had and making it, our future stores a little bit bigger, better traffic flow. And we'd go back and we'd update this, the first 15 stores that we'd already made. And by store 15 or 20, 50, we had it pretty much figured out. And it was just more about changing the animals and changing the outfits and the fashion of the business versus the operations of the store. The box was definitely there uh, from the very beginning. I, this is a cute story. It's a true story. I, I always admired McDonald's and their Happy Meal. But when we were working on our bears for uh, distribution the Chinese manufacturer had come to town and he loved bagels. And so he stopped at Einstein Bagels and brought in a big tote box of the bagels into the office. And they were sitting on the counter on our table that we were working at. And the box was there and there was a bear sort of leaning up against the box. And it just dawned on me that that should be the carrier for our bears. That was about, that was the, this, it was a bigger, we made a bigger box and we decorated it, but then it would be a house for the bears and the kids could decorate it. And so very quickly, our, our, our uh, marketing firm redesigned it and got it going for us. And we uh, developed the artwork and we produced those boxes to be part of the, and the price of that box was built into the retail price of our, of our, our bear. So the, the birth certificate was from the beginning. Uh, little did I, you know, I didn't know this either. I mean, you know, we just sort of thought about it when I realized that I lost my teddy bear and Katie almost lost her teddy bear. We came up with this system and the, person who was running our POS system, the company that was making our, our POS system, the salesman was so excited about our idea. I was trying to figure out how we could create this barcode that we would be able to identify every single bear. And he actually helped me do that. And he said, you just need a really simple system and you just tear it off and put half of the in the bear. And then the customer registers it in this birth certificate system that you have. Because I, I was the merchandise manager when we had Cabbage Patch. The dolls were really popular in the discount store business. And they all had a birth certificate. I don't know if you remember that, but they all had a birth certificate with their name on it. And so you could, uh, kids love that. I, I know that mothers and fathers and everybody that's coming in to buy Cabbage Patch Kids. So we created that for, uh, for our bears too. And you could name your own bear. And I remember when I was telling Katie this, that we we're going to you know, come up with uh, names for the bears. And then that would go on the birth certificate. She says, you can't name the bears. I wouldn't want anybody to name George, George, or some other name. He was George. I named him George. Well, she didn't really name him George because she was a baby when she got him. But the person who gave it to her was named George. So George just became the name of the bear. But I know she felt she named him. And um, so we let every child name their bear. And 176 million bears have been named and put into our computers. And we know where all of them live. I love just hearing uh, the, the origin of, of all the inspiration and, and how all these things came to be. And I'll now I'll connect that whenever I'm in the mall and I see Build-A-Bear. But, but, but I don't know why I'm any. Uh, do you know what the most common Build-A-Bear name is after 176 million? It depends on. So it's so much about fashion. So when I just remember this, when when um, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sousa were battling for the um, home running home run king that summer. I think it was 1999 or 98, the most popular bear in Chicago was Sammy and the most popular bear in St. Louis was Mac or McGuire or um, Mark. I mean, it goes with whatever the, um, what's going on. Kids are very sensitive to news and trends. And so we see that a lot. Teddy was common, but then there was Amanda and Mary. There's no common really name, but a lot of times when we have licensed animals, like for um, 
Star Wars, the kids name it what the name is of the animal. So that one isn't as creative as sometimes Chewbacca's wearing something really funny and cute, uh, like a bride's dress or something, but his name is still Chewie in the computer. The kids still name him. So it, there's no real, it just depends on the, the child and or if it's a boyfriend making a bear for his girlfriend or a girlfriend making it for a boyfriend or somebody making it for a friend in the hospital. There's no common name anymore. And there never was really. It just depended on the trends in the in the marketplace. <laughs> I love it. It's like the Build-A-Bear cultural index, you know, pop culture index, yeah. and you can you can check that out. So just yeah. to give like a little bit of context, like, you know, you mentioned you went from, from the one store in St. Louis to 15, like how quickly, what was the growth tra- trajectory of Build-A-Bear and how quickly did you grow and what was that like? It was fast. Um, the first year we had one store in October. By the next October, we had four four total stores and the next October we had by the next October we had 15 stores uh, and then we added about 25 stores a year 25 to 35 a year um, by the time we went public in 2004 we had I think almost 175 150 stores and then we had we grew to 300 stores and then 350 and right now around the world there's about 400 stores mm. and so but most of that growth came in the first 10 years okay yeah. And, you know, so you were going through that and it sounds like you have a, you had a ton of success and, you know, certainly we're given the, uh, the, the cliff notes version here, but like, what was, you know, what was the hard part about it? What was hard for you during that time? Well, I had investors and, you know, we went through a couple of stages where people wanted to take the company public earlier than I thought the company was ready. We had to you know, kind of figure that out together. And we did. Um, I had great investors. We had, um, up and down economic times and the most recent one, the economic recession in 2008 and nine and uh, was devastating. It was really hard. And it was the beginning of the change in the mall business because at the same time in 2007, gas prices went up to like $2.50 a gallon and people were coming to the mall less and they had other options. And the internet was becoming much more accessible. Women were not afraid to shop. It was way easy. And stores were now had websites. You could have, even if you didn't live in a city with Nordstroms, you could buy on Nordstrom. So, of course, Amazon um, becoming so much more pervasive, uh, grocery shopping, all of these things that didn't start out so great um, were getting better and better and better, and people were able to use them. So, it wasn't just the recession that impacted mall business so greatly, but it was the recession along with the ease of buying and shopping online. And Build a Bear is it's different for us because while we have a website and we always have had children don't shop on the web, especially small children. And so mom has to drive you to the mall. I, I know for a fact that if, if kids could come every day, they would. Uh, but um, mom doesn't do that. And she doesn't come to the mall with her children as often as she did. She comes for Build-A-Bear. Build-A-Bear is definitely a defi- destination, but it's not someplace that she goes six times a year. But she might have gone to the mall six to 12 times a year. And she might have brought her kids at least 50% of the time. But now she may not come to the mall that often. And so we, we deal with, we have to deal with that change in mall traffic, um, but we're up to it. And we're, you know, we've adjusted our store size uh, accordingly and we've closed some stores after the recession. It became kind of clear where some of the best locations were and where they weren't. But Build-A-Bear is an important member of the mall community because when a customer comes to the mall to come to Build-A-Bear, they stay for about an, over an hour in the mall. And that's good for the malls. That mean, And when they bring children, that means they're going to go probably stop at the food court and they're going to do something else besides coming to build bear. So we're very, we're a very um, important tenant, and the landlords have all been great to us. In fact, they were incredibly wonderful investors in build bear in their own way, because they wanted us to come so badly, they would pay for our stores to 
be built out and make sure they had the latest and greatest Build-A-Bear store. So they were great partners with us in the development of Build-A-Bear, and they've been great partners um, in the last uh, 10 years as well in with even the challenges to retail because they want us to be successful. Yeah, and it's so interesting to think about. I, I remember being a child, like literally living at the mall, uh, first with my mother, then, you know, with my friends, yeah. and then, you know, it was really a big part of my life. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you would go and, you know, we'd have to go uh, do school shopping and do that whole thing where mom is trying on all the, sh- you know, clothes. <laughs> And then, and then you go. Then oh, there's a builder bear or whatever, right? And so uh, I can really see how that can that can change things. And so, you know, you, you started build a bear, had amazing growth. It's doing great. And it, at a certain point, you decide to leave the company. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it, it's good. This is an exciting story, actually. I really, again, influenced by another ten year old. I was visiting. You know, I, I look. I started build a bear. I was forty eight years old, and I knew that I wasn't going to do it forever. I knew that I had a lot of things else that I wanted to do in life and I needed to get on with it. But then we hit the recession and I was, I was actually staying longer. And then a person that I thought was going to be my heir apparent did not work out. So, you know, I just kept moving along and I was at a local school in North St. Louis, which is a very poor area. And I was, I always go to talk to kids. And that day, I, a little, this little girl stood up. This is the short story of this. Her name was Tia and she was, um, 10 years old and she was in the fifth grade. And she said, Miss Clark, do you believe that all children's dreams come true? And I said, yes, Tia, I do. What's your dream? And she said, my dream is to find the sun, S-U-N. And of course, I thought I was talking to a future Bill Gates because I grew up in Florida. I saw the sun every day. I never thought twice about it. But this little girl was asking about the sun and I took it literally. Like, you know, I said to her, Tia, I think that's a great dream. And when I want to find something or do something, I go and study it. So we could go to the library and I could introduce you to my friend who's a weathercaster and we could go to Washington University and see the Mars rover and talk to people about the sun. And I, I was I was really enthralled with my answers here. And uh, by the time, uh, and, you know, she asked this question and all the kids started laughing at her. And I realized that she probably was this child that asked a lot of provocative questions. And so when I was done, when I finished, realized, I, okay, I was out of my field here. I needed to stop talking about science and get back to bears. All the kids had stopped laughing. And every question after that was about um, science. And I realized what really happened there was that they were asking me things because they wanted to be acknowledged and they wanted to be smart like Tia. And so I left there and I was feeling like this amazing feeling of power, you know, not power in a negative way, but opportunity to influence. I called my husband and I said, you know, there's more for me to do here. I've got to get on with it. He said, well, you better figure it out because you're, you know, you're it. And um, I later in a couple by holiday was talking to the board and we decided that we, they would look for a, that has to be the board decision to look for the successor. And by the following June, we had somebody and I retired in August. And though I'm still on the board and I'm still a large investor, I don't get involved in the day to day. And I'm really have the time to do and the, the financial wherewithal to make a huge difference in my community inspired by Tia. So it's just interesting that they were both 10 year old girls, one from a very affluent neighborhood and one from one not so very affluent. And uh, they both had a, had a life-changing impact on me. And they're both about my height too. But the, um, <laughs> so we saw eye to eye on things. But, but that is just a true, that is a true story. And last year I went to see Tia. She's in the, now she's in the 11th grade, but she was in the 10th grade. And I went to see her to tell her how much impact she had on me. And she said, Miss Clark, I didn't mean that. That's not what I was talking about. I said, I know it wasn't. I know that what you asked me was different. But 
when I thought about your question and I took it really seriously, it made me think about my own son. Had I found my son yet? And you helped me think about it. And I still am, you know, reaching for that sun and the moon and the stars. And I, I really appreciate what you did. I just wanted you to know that. So, it, and we forget to do that too. You know, we get ideas come to us from different ways, but we don't always say thank you. Yeah. And it's like, depending on where you are in your life, you either need to be seeking out more 10 year old girls or like steering clear because they have profound changes uh, in your uh, trajectory. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> so ideas come from so many places. And I, I, I now spend my time with young people and their ideas, helping them take their ideas to the next level. So I, I work in an organization called the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. And I'm working a lot of on college campuses and entrepreneurship. I work in, in our city and I mentor a lot of women and minorities. I've been a small investor and that's mostly what people need is they need the right advice. And I got it. Remember I told you I worked in the May company. I could call up anybody I knew there, but most, many of these young people, they don't have that network yet. And so I try to be that network as best I can. Um, but it gives me more than it gives them, quite frankly. You know, I get to hear their deep, dark secrets, their great ideas and it keeps me um, in shape, so to speak, my, you know, what's going on in the world. Uh, and I am on the board of build and I'm on the board of Foot Locker, and I'm on the board of PBS and other nonprofits. But all of those things together have a lot in common. They're just really generating future entrepreneurs. And that's really what I'm, uh, I think our country needs. It doesn't mean that, I mean, to me, an entrepreneur is a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, a gardener in his own business. I mean, it doesn't have to be that you're, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that level. In fact, they, I believe the future of our economy is going to be built on many, many millions of small business owners and inventors that uh, come up with uh, great products at the moment, and then the next one, and the next one after that. We, maybe the, the, we won't see as many gigantic companies uh, as we've seen in the past, uh, but lots of small ones that help fuel our communities around the country. Yeah, and, you know, when, when we sat together the first time, I and mean, that's what really struck me about meeting you was just how passionate and dedicated you were to your own local community mm-hmm. um, and St. Louis and, and what you're doing there. I mean, do you want to talk specifically about any of the projects you're working on there right now? Um, sure. I, well, there's, they're so varied. People think, how do you do all these things? But they're all related. They're all about, you know, building on uh, the history of our community, building on what was once here and making it better. And so my next big project, I've been working on it for three years, is uh, called um, the Delmar Divine. It is the uh, reimagination of a, an old hospital that closed about six years ago or seven years ago and has been lying dormant. It was built first built in, in 1904 and had been expanded up until 1965 and then closed because it wasn't in a part of town uh, where they really wanted to be for the future. And, it, you know, they put some things in there, some smaller hospitals used the space and uh, but anyway, it's in a really critical neighborhood, and it's on the on the street called Delmar in St. Louis, which divides rich and poor, black and white. And I want to be part of that transformation, so in the future generations won't know about that divide; uh, they'll only know about the divine. And so we've been working on this. It's a complicated project because it's a half a million square feet. I say it's the half half a mall size. I speak in mall terms, but it's going to be a, a unique working space for nonprofits and apartments for teachers, nurses, social workers, public health workers, public safety, those people that make that thirty-five to 55000 and still a lot of them have to live at home because it's too expensive to live. And we're creating these fabulous school apartments, and it's really in a great neighborhood, actually. Um, it's between Washington University um, undergraduate campus and the medical school campus in a very, uh, once very vibrant neighborhood, but there's vibrant neighborhoods to our east and to our west. And we're the bridge that will bridge the two together and then bridge north um, so that 
you know, 25 years from now, no one will remember that they used to call it um, the divide and it separated our community. It will be all working together. And I do a lot of things around that that bring us together that will be either be tenants or be businesses in the neighborhood of the Del Mar Divine. So I'm working on creating opportunities for people who live in the community and uh, to invest in this project uh, with their own businesses and also with their own nonprofits. So it's a, it's coming together. It's going to open up in the, in 2020. Uh, so it's, it's a major undertaking, but most malls, that's how long they took too. So I'm just more impatient because I had the idea for Build-A-Bear and in January and opened it up in October. So that was a, you know, much faster. Um, but, and while I raised the same amount of money for Bilderberg that I have to raise for this project, ultimately, I have to do this one more upfront and that one I, I got to do along the way. So it, it takes a little bit longer to do that. And it's in a part of town that uh, not all St. Louisans, you know, think is, is worthy of this kind of redevelopment, but I do. And I'm gonna show them that I'm right. Just like I did with Bilderberg. The, the same adult said, oh, that'll never work. You know, so um, I think that uh, it takes, you know, somebody who just doesn't take no for an answer. In fact, no makes me go harder in this particular project because it once was a very vibrant neighborhood and it could be that again. And I love history. I'm, I'm from Miami and there wasn't really art. Most of the houses in my neighborhood were all relatively new. These are really historic homes, beautiful, beautiful churches in the neighborhood. Uh, St. Louis had a really wonderful history. And as the city, people moved out of the city into the suburbs, they abandoned some of these most beautiful buildings and these neighborhoods. And, and so we have a lot of good choices to resurrect and renovate and reimagine. Mm, so ambitious and, and so incredible. And I, you know, the city of St. Louis is certainly lucky to have you and your husband and all the work you guys are doing there. And again, that's, that's what really struck me about, you know, you know, meeting you is just how proud you are to be from St. Louis and committed to saying like, this is my home and we're really going to uh, make it something special for the future. And, and so there's no doubt in my mind that your legacy is going to live on through those, those actions and, and like the children like Tia that, that you've affected. You know, as, as we get to the end here, Maxine, I have, I have two final questions. And, and the first is, I know that you you look at Build-A-Bear and, and you, you really think that and, and see it as, and, and I agree with you, that it was a great combination of, of marketing and, and PR and, and branding and really strong brand recognition and, and you're, you're a great brand builder. Uh, like, what did you love about brand building at, at, at Build-A-Bear? Well, you know, I just believe that, you know, if you, if you think of, you know, make it as big as it can be or as good as it can be. Uh, it doesn't necessarily cost more. Like, remember one of my advisors, my friends, I showed him the box and he says, what do you want to spend the money on that for? Just get a bag. And um, when I was pricing bags and pricing the box, the box was actually cheaper. So a lot of times we think that things that look better um, cost more, but they don't always cost more. In fact, they might cost less. And, and that was a really good lesson for me. You know, it's sort of our cub condo, the box that the bear goes home in. It's like our Tiffany blue box. And I, I've, all the things that I loved about places that I shopped and that I kept in my head that I took pictures of that I didn't used to have in my phone because we didn't have phone pictures, but I still remember them clearly. I put into Build-A-Bear and I knew that if I made it, to make it successful, I had to put all my good ideas in. And if that didn't work, then I was, you know, out of luck. And then I at least put everything in there. But if I had just cheat, you know, said, no, we can't afford this, we can't afford that, it, I wouldn't have known what to put in if it wasn't successful. So that's how I look at it. And I wanted customers to feel like it wasn't a local teddy bear toy store. It was a national company. I remember working behind the register in the first weeks that we were open, even the first few months, because this is owned by Disney, you know, or this is Warner Brothers, or, you know, that people didn't know that it was a local owner. And I, that just made me kind of laugh inside because... I wanted it to be that. I wanted them to think that this was something 
really cool and really special. And I wanted the people that worked there to be proud of the brand that they were working for and always set a good example for it. And so um, I, I, I want the same for the young people that I work with in our communities too. I want them to see that every brand that we put in front of them, everything that I'm asking them to invest in or to work on or to, to engage with is really very upscale, very aspirational because they deserve that. I, I don't chintz, you know, I, I figure out what the, I sort of say, I look for the Bentley and then I figure out how to do it on a Ford budget. But first when it's in your head and you know, you want to do it and you want it, everybody deserves that. And we've had great examples in our, in, in front of us. I mean, look at Nike and the branding that they've done. Look at Starbucks, look at McDonald's. I mean, there's great branding out there and I want to build a bear to stand amongst those brands as one that if it went away, mm. people would really miss yeah. it. Yeah, and I'm sure they would today, right? Like, I'm, I'm, there'd be there'd be an outrage if Build a Bear went away. Yeah, I think my I kids so. my, my kids would I not be too so. happy. <laughs> and I wanted everybody that worked there to be really proud of the company that they worked for. To to you know, when they walked in every day, to be you know just so happy. And I think that really is. It's one of the best companies to work for in America, and I'm really proud of that. And I'm proud that it's continued all these years after I left as well. So, Maxine, what would the 20 year old say to you if they ran into you today? the 20 year old me. Yeah. Well, I was very impatient, you know, so I, I did learn some patience as I got older. So they would uh, you know, probably tell me to, well, they would probably tell me to keep, keep going, keep on, keep on keeping on. Um, because I was, you know, I just wanted to do everything. I had the, my future was in front of me, but I would tell somebody looking back that, you know, be a little bit more patient. You don't have to do everything at front, up front that there's lots of arcs in your life and you can even start a business at 48 years old. You don't have to rush it all into your 20s. You can spread it out over a much longer lifetime than I'll even have. And to it, to constantly be learning, to not think that you have to you have to go this route or that route and stay on that route, that you can be flexible. And that learn to apply your skills uh, in one thing to something else, you know, adapt your, uh, sometimes it's adapting your resume, but not necessarily the resume, the printed resume, but your own skills. What did you learn in that job? I look at so many basic resumes that people send me and I say, what did you do? You know, how many, how many projects did you work on? You project manager. What does that mean? How many projects did you work on? What were the most successful? Tell about that in your, in your, in your resume. And I have a great story to tell. I mean, I really lived a great business life working for a large, wonderful corporation. And I was able to use that to apply to my own business. And I've applied it to the boards that I'm on and the, the nonprofit work that I'm doing now. It's all just building on that incredible history. I hate to think of it as history because it makes me sound old, but you know, it was in fact my a significant amount of time uh, that I've been working in the work world and it feels like yesterday. So I, I, I had a lot more time than I thought. And that is Maxine Clark and Build-A-Bear Workshop. What really struck me about this conversation with Maxine is that it's all about the totality of your life and your career. And there's always so much more of your story to be written. We are never done creating and building and shaping the world around us. Maxine Clark is one of the true innovators in the retail industry. And while she has passed the torch to the next generation of leadership at Build-A-Bear, her legacy lives on. And today, there are more than 400 Build-A-Bear workshop stores worldwide, and they have created over 160 million furry friends and countless more smiles. It's a lot of love out there in the world. Build-A-Bear is where you go to create lasting memories. Talk about putting positivity out into the world for all of us. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. Until next time. 
Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. Baby got backstory. You'll also find free story downloads and resources to help you integrate the power of story into your business. 